From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to a full hour of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. Going two halves the summer of 23. We are slimmed down experimenting with a one-hour show. We're going to talk open lines here in the first half, and we'll roll into guest in the second half. Our guest this week is Ryan O'Hanlon. Ryan is a soccer writer, often uh, a guest on the show, and it's a big, it's a kind of a big soccer moment. World Women's World Cup, Lionel Messi, the beginning of Premier League. We have a great conversation with Ryan, second half of the show. We are recording on Tuesday afternoon as we usually as we usually are. This is Cade Massey hosting this week with Eric Bradlow and Audie Weiner, two of my three longtime collaborators. Shane Jensen is out this week. Shane Jensen will be back. Gentlemen, we're going to talk about the Women's World Cup in the second half of the show. Obviously, um, disappointing performance from the U.S. team knocked out in the round of 16 after finishing second in the group stage, forcing them into a tougher draw in the round of 16 by a millimeter, no less. One of the closest goals you'll ever see, tournament deciding um, goals, or at least a team tournament deciding goal. But we're going to set that aside for the second half. I think the other big topic of the week, it's fair to say, even in my, even if I am subjective and biased, is what's going on in college sports this week. So on Friday, what some people have called one of the biggest days in college sports history, the Pac-12 essentially went away with Oregon and Washington really kind of pushing it over for good and accepting bids and actually off, making application and being accepted to the Big Ten, which led uh, three other schools to join Colorado in moving to the Big 12. So Arizona, who was already halfway out the door, were joined by a couple of reluctant um, conference mates, Arizona State and Utah, just to save their skin and grab four spots along with Colorado in the Big 12. That leaves only four. The Pac-12, originally Pac-8, then Pac-10, the Pac-12 is now Pac-4. And those teams are now wondering what happens next. The the rumor is, not the rumor, apparently the ACC is considering Cal and Stanford, however that would work, ACC being East Coast, at least it's being considered. Oregon State, Washington State look like they might be on their own, as other teams in the past have been on their own as conferences have dissolved. We haven't seen it happen very often, Power Five power conferences disappearing. Southwest Conference was one about 30 years ago, which stranded the likes of TCU and SMU and Houston. So we've seen it before, but to the Pac-12, it's just really something. So I, I do have some opinions and some forecasts, and I'd like to share them and get your reactions, but Adi has a question. Yeah, at some point, do we have to ask, what does this do to the ability of the of the athletes to also be students? I mean, the idea about the Pac-12 or Pac-8, Pac-10 is that they're all on the West Coast, which means that when they play games, they're not that far from each other. How are they supposed to be going back and forth to the East Coast to put to play football games and still be allegedly athletes? It's, at what point is Stanford students uh, being a former uh, you know faculty member there for a short while and, and a graduate student? They didn't give too many breaks to their athletes. They had to do a full Stanford curriculum. Are they going to be running around the the country? Is that going to work? I mean, what is the, what is the story with that? Well, it's only theory for Stanford right now, but it's reality or it will be reality soon for Southern Cal, UCLA, Washington, and Oregon. And they're playing in the Big Ten, and the Big Ten spans from, I don't know, Minnesota all the way to New Jersey. So exactly what you talked about is going to happen at these other schools, and it's a major concern. And flip it around, we have, you know, the athletes in the Midwest and even on the East Coast or random small-town Pennsylvania having to find their ways to California to play a midweek basketball game. So, I mean, people have been talking about that for a week. It's just a little bit more of a reality and also involves a few more teams. Now, one of the upsides of adding Washington and Oregon is that you could have a West Coast pod of sorts and take, you know, at least reduce a game or two, the number of times the teams have to travel that far away. But it's, it's a big it's a big open question, Adi. Eric. I was going to ask you, Kate, a structural question, which I haven't heard about. So let's say these teams move to the Big Ten or to the Big 12. Um, at least I, I know in the Big Ten it's true. There's two divisions within the Big Ten. So how would these different schools go to them? Will it cause an imbalance in the schedule so that, 
you know, it makes like right now, as I remember, I think Ohio State, Michigan, maybe Penn State are all in one division, like, I don't know, Minnesota or whatever's in there, Wisconsin's in the other division. So Wisconsin like always gets to the Big Ten championship game. How is all this going to affect the balance of schedule even within a division? Now there could be 16 teams in the Big Ten or whatever you want to call it. Well, it's it's 18, which is a mess. Of course. All right. So what do we do with 18 teams in the Big Ten? Well, to begin with, they've already made the decision to do away with divisions. That 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 is ah, a, okay. that's a trend that has been moving its way across college football for a while. So the Big Twelve is without divisions. The ACC is going this year without divisions. The SEC is going next year. I think the Pac-12 went last year. So the, all these divisions have been kind of go away, and the Big Ten is is going away. So in that sense, it'll be simpler, but they're, they're, they're going to, have to get creative on how they do this. And no one really knows. And people, of course, ask the question of, OK, how at what point do you have so many teams that it's not really a conference? I mean, they're, they're not they're certainly not going to, you know, teams are gra- grappling. Leagues are grappling with how can we have schools play each other frequently enough to actually feel like they're in the same conference with each other? You know, famously, like Texas A&M has been in the SEC for what? you know, 12 years or something, and they've played Georgia once or something like that. That's what I was was also going to say. Like, how often, if you just did the math, there's 18 teams, and let's say you play six or seven within division games. So that means they're going to play each other every three years? Is that what's going to happen? The the debates, the the conferences have been playing either eight or nine. Okay, so they'll play each other every other year on average. On average, but it's it's a tricky thing to navigate, of course. And, uh, you know, another trick, Eric, along these lines, the better – these conferences get the less they're going to be interested in just playing each other. You know, if you're only playing other heavyweights, you probably don't want to play nine conference games. This has been one of the debates within sec because everyone wants them to go to nine because it makes the schedule better and they're more good games. And they're looking around and saying, Hey, I'm going to play all these other teams. Maybe I should just play eight of them and I'll play some non-conference. Isn't the, isn't, isn't the eventual equilibrium though, let's call it contraction, then expansion. What I mean by that is, Let's imagine right now I'm the second best team, third best team, whatever, in the Big Ten. And all of a sudden now, because of these entrants, I'm the sixth best team in the Big Ten. Why do I want to be the sixth best team in the Big Ten? So isn't there an equilibrium where there's contraction and then eventually there's departure again? Well, it's a fascinating question. And it's that's one that no one has the answer to and everyone's kind of spinning stories. But what, I think one of the things that's going on here that is clear is that this isn't just geographic realignment. This is sorting. This is sorting the the revenue generators, the maximum res- revenue generators from the from the from the less from the from the rest of them, and so a team like USC or Oregon is sitting around the Pac-12 wondering why they're getting the same league split, even though they demand many more eyeballs on TV or they provide many more eyeballs on TV, mill- millions more. In fact, you know, one, two, three times as many eyeballs as other or even four as other teams in their conference. And so it just economically is hard to pull. It's hard to keep together groups who provide such different value if you can't pay them differently. And this is just the economic reality of it. You're suggesting, well, there's another, another round, like what happens next? Okay. So fine. We're sloughing. It's the big 12, the top two out of the big 12 have sloughed the bottom, you know, whatever it was, eight teams. Now the top four, out of the Pac-12 have dropped the bottom, you know, whatever, not eight. Their numbers don't match their names all the time. Anyway, the separation has happened in these two conferences. And the question you're asking is, okay, so now we've got these two really, you know, fancy conferences, the Big 12 and the Pac and the and the SEC. But they're not exactly equal either. So yeah, we've got all these heavyweights in here. And now we have almost all the blue bloods across the entire country in here. Almost. What about the Purdue's and the Vanderbilt's and the Missouri's? Right. Don't we have the same disparity problem again? Haven't we just created like a bigger version of what we just saw dissolve in the Pac-12 and before that, the Big 12? And I think that's a very fair question. And this is why people think that eventually we might get to this kind of super conference thing where, yeah, we might actually, I mean, it's hard to imagine. There've been such loyalty in those two conferences, but look, we have seen the limits of loyalty. We've seen what happened. Money drives these decisions and we're talking about, you know, how much more valuable would it be if the top half of the new SEC only played the top half of the new Big Ten instead of having to spend some of the kind of waste from a TV generation, from a TV perspective, wasting Saturdays pitting Alabama against Kentucky when they could have a conference game against, you know, Oregon. 
are UCLA. And from an yeah. eyeballs perspective, at least historically, from an eyeballs perspective, it's millions of viewers difference. I'm not yeah, saying this is right at all. I'm just saying this is the economic reality of it. This is the economic that has economics that have driven things to this point. And it's hard not to extrapolate just as you are to something beyond where we are now, because it doesn't feel like we're at equilibrium yet. So let me ask you an analytics related question. Given that teams might be playing better teams now because of the concentration, will it allow for better prediction in the draft? Because in some sense, uh, players will get exposed and play possibly a more rigorous schedule. Like instead of, you know, someone, even someone on Purdue, instead of them playing one, two good games a year, now they're playing six games a year. Shouldn't there be more information about players that could potentially be capitalized on in the draft? Yeah, I, I think that's very fair. I mean, you talk to person, you guys in, in scouting departments in the NFL, and they greatly differentiate the tape they're watching when right. it's against another, you know, Power Five team or the Blue Bloods of the Power Five versus another game. They had they they do look at the other games, but they know it's more diagnostic when they're watching against equal equal players. That's one hundred percent true. Um, we can spin out other implications, so. One that I think people people are sometimes talking about, but not enough yet, is that the recruiting there there'll be recruiting consequences to this, and so the teams that have been competing, you know, periodically, the TCU's, the Oklahoma States, Oregon State had a good year last year, kind of unexpectedly. These second tier teams in the formerly Big Five conferences will have the tides running against them in the recruiting side. They've already got tides running against them, but as the conferences separate, the, there's more and more pull for the top players to move to those conferences as well. We saw this with the SEC. We've seen this with the SEC over the last 10 years. When Texas A&M moved from the Big 12 to the SEC, they went from having almost no top 10 recruiting classes to almost every year being in the top 10 in the recruiting class. If you look at the 10 years before, 10 years after, it's a dramatic switch in what happens to their recruiting fortunes just by being in a different conference. Texas had the opposite. Texas was recruiting at that level. Texas A&M's move over there gave them such an advantage. They so often go against each other that it brought Texas's classes down. Texas fought that recruiting tide for the last, especially five, six years. And it was one of the factors in the decision to go. It's one of the factors in SC and UCLA's decisions to go. They know that it's harder to get talent when all the high school kids come out knowing the best games, the best teams, the most attention, the best development for professional prospects are in those two conferences. And so that whole dynamic is just going to accelerate the separation that we're seeing. Whatever separation we see now is going to be enhanced because of high school kids' choices that are in response to this. So that's one thing that'll happen. The other, the other thing that people are, have speculated in the past and seems more obvious now, and it goes back to Adi's question. When do we see football just separate from the other sports? At what point is it just ludicrous? And why obviously not the right thing to do to send softball teams around the nation, to send volleyball teams around the nation on Tuesday nights to have, I mean, maybe basketball, it makes some sense, but there are 20 at least in some schools, 30 other athletic programs. At what point do you just say, okay, fine, football teams. Y'all want to play on some weird national schedule? Great, knock yourselves out. But we're gonna we're gonna go back to regional schedules for the other teams. And it feels that back to equilibrium, Eric. I think equilibrium is exactly the right question to be asking. It does not feel equal at equilibrium to have this, the Olympic sports, the non-revenue sports, playing these national schedules. Adi. I'm gonna actually push something a little bit even further on you guys. At what point do these schools? get together and create just spin off the football team as if it's just not part of the college. They grant the students, they grant these athletes now access to the schools. Why not? And, but it just, it's so much more amenable to everything that they want to do. I mean, if they just, if in other words, Stanford would have its uh, 
its school, but it also have its football team, which is essentially a loosely organized, organized entity yeah. connected to Stanford, but would really be its football team. It all of a sudden <laughs> be severed from the Title IX regulations, which basically dump all the money going out of the, the football team into the other sports. They wouldn't yeah. have to have this problem with the, you know, tying up the volleyball team with the, with the, with the schedule. I mean, yeah. at, at what point do they realize to say what they are, which is essentially the minor leagues or professional, they're the professional developmental talent organization for the professionals. And and recognize that's what they are. And with the NIL de- deals making this so much more lucrative for the athletes with the transfer portal, allowing them to go from school to school, almost like they're transferring from single to double A to triple A. And then finally, you know, and then taking an extra year. This is just the this might be the inevitable conclusion. I don't think it's crazy. And people have voiced it before. And and where in years past people might have thought that was crazy. Increasingly, they think it's possible. So. We had to ask, you know, what are the what what in what way would that benefit the games or the leagues or the athletic departments? You know, we can spin through that, but there are possibilities. And one interesting wrinkle that's emerged that met, might go in that direction is that Florida State apparently has contracted with J.P. Morgan to look into financing to buy them out of their ACC deal. Famously, the ACC deal runs, the media rights run through 2036, and getting out of it cost $120 million, just as, as to begin with, $120 million to get out early. And it may be in their best interest to do that because they're foregoing something like $30 million a year in TV money by, seeing the, by being in the ACC instead of what they could do at the SEC. All I can say is with NIL, with realignment, and with the playoff expansion, I can't wait for college football. Well, their games will be big, more big games, but there's some there are some losses as well, and it is clearly a financially driven thing. All right, guys, that has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We have a second half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You are listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to the second half. Wharton Moneyball in our slim down summer of 23 version. In that version, we talk to guests in the second half of the show. In addition to the guests, we've got Cade Maskey and Eric Bradlow here. I think Adi Weiner might slide back in here. Shane Jensen will not. Shane is off conferencing, I believe, right now. He'll be back. On the guest side of things, we are delighted to have back on the show Ryan O'Hanlon. Ryan, for better or worse, has become one of our favorites. Now we just keep on calling him back. Poor guy. Can't get the time to write books and cover soccer like a responsible person would, but he is here and we're delighted that he is Ryan afternoon to you. Thanks for joining. I'm a little offended. Adi isn't here. I, I did a talk with one of his classes a couple of weeks ago and he couldn't repay it by showing up to the recording. <laughs> I'll, I'll take, I'll take it. No give Ryan. Um, that's why, that's why he had you go first. That's a good point. <laughs> So Ryan is referring to our Wharton Moneyball Academy that Adi has put together and runs every summer. And over the years, he's built just a heck of a guest lecturer. Um, Corral, um, Remuda, uh, Remuda, as we used to say in, in the West, all these, these, these great writers, analysts, even former execs come through and talk. And Ryan has been added to that list. Ryan, you're um, back in Southern California now, I believe, after some time in Ireland, which sounds like a lovely change of pace. There's Audie Ryan sliding in there here. <laughs> Audie Ryan was just lamenting you're not being here. He said it was only fair that you show up for him, given that he guest lectured in your class like 15 minutes yeah. ago. Well, there I am. And uh, I have contractors <laughs> in the house. <laughs> Audie has been relegated to some children's room apparently this is a new background for us going to change it up we got contractors in two rooms i had to escape to my daughter's old bedroom all right well this is going to work fine it's a good thing we're just an audio show this week ryan listen man there's uh it's a good week maddie das did did good job pulling you on this week it's a good week to talk soccer there are some obvious storylines what, for, from your perspective, what are you thinking about? What's top of the mind for you in the world of soccer right now? Uh, among the things we, we discussed about potentially discussing, uh, maybe maybe we start with the women's national team who have been a national topic of discussion, uh, for better or worse, usually worse in my opinion, um, 
over the past couple of days? Uh, yeah, so they um, lost to Sweden in PK's round of 16. Uh, first time they've finished worse than third in the World Cup, in the history of the World Cup. Um, and, you know, as these things do at World Cups, when a favorite lo- loses early, it raises all kinds of questions about the stability of the national infrastructure and, you know, whether we hired the wrong coach, whether the players are distracted, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I don't know. I, I felt like a lot of it is, I think there are some criticisms to be made about the way the team uh, played and the way they were coached. But uh, for me, I look at it and they gave up two shots on target in four games, um, one goal in four games, uh, had something like 85 to 90 percent of the shot share in their games. Um, and sometimes the ball doesn't bounce your way. <laughs> I know that's mm-hmm. such a banal, mm-hmm. boring way to look at uh, what happened, but that to me is the main main driver of what happened. What? I mean, so Ryan, but of course the ball did bounce their way in the Portugal game when that header could have gone in and the U.S. would not even have gotten out of the group stage. So, you know, as they say, the soccer gods giveth and they taketh, right? I guess. I mean, you could also say that if that shot was on goal, the keeper would have saved it. So, um, you know, to me, to me, if... I don't, when I say bounce of the ball, maybe I'm 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 more referring to randomness in general than the actual specific bounce of the ball. Um, this guy Elliot McKinley, I think you you might have had him on the show once. Um, he did a did an analysis like a simulation of all of the shots the the USWNT took at the World Cup um, based on their XG values, and he found that um, there's a 1.8 percent chance that they would score four goals from the 85 shots <laughs> they took at the World Cup. Um, so to me, that, so Ryan, that's I, the main story. Okay, I, I love I love the analysis, and th- that, and generally we think that sounds right. Obviously, the alternative story would be that some of that deviation from expected would come from poor finishing, to the extent that we believe finishing is actually a skill. And the only, I mean, I don't know these things, so I'm asking you. I would say, I, I believe there was some concern about the team's finishing skill. Ex ante, that before the tournament, people were worried about that, which would give it a whole lot more credence to the extent that that's true. If it only came up once some of these goals started hitting posts and, and keepers, that's another thing. But how do you come down on whether finishing is actually a skill and whether this team was actually weak on that and believed to be weak on that ex ante? Yeah, I, I I think finishing is always over oversold, um, you know, and I think it's possible that the team is just filled with a bunch of bad finishers or, you know, I'm not one to say that like confidence doesn't exist in sports, right? So athletes talk about it all the time that it matters to them. Um, but but I, I think it was, they scored four goals from, I think, nine expected goals. And like, if that's, that's their true finishing level, they're like the worst group of finishers that are professional soccer players on planet earth so i think like yes poor finishing <laughs> is an issue but not to this degree it's just okay. not it's like not feasible in my in my opinion okay well i mean i, I have a couple of remarks if they were expected to score nine and they scored four that's not terrible these are approximately you know binomials across on they, their XGs are always low. No XGs. I mean, rarely over a half. I doubt even how I many any of them were even that high. Um, which means if you just sum up the the P, the NP one minus P's, you get a variance that's probably in the neighborhood of three or f- three, right? Or a standard deviation around three. Well, and Adi, wouldn't a Poisson approximation be the square root of the mean? So about yeah, three. that would be three, right? Um, so. And that, that of course, um, was probably a pretty decent approximation. So all the one minus P's are pretty cl- close to zero, uh, close to one. So four isn't, that's the worst ever, really? I mean, that's not even two standard deviations. Uh, I, I just mean, if that's, if that's like, if we projected them to do that. Yeah, he's saying their expectation, <laughs> that would be, their expectation was for I see. But in one yeah. short tournament, that's not terrible. I guess one of my reaction uh, immediately, because we spent... No, but, you know, but Adi, but re- re- Adi, real quickly, the, Ryan's point was, if they were truly poor finishers, if four was their expected... Oh, that would be terrible. Skill, yes, that, that's, would be, that was the argument. That's why Ryan I went see. with expectation. I see. So, Let me tell you, follow up one thing, Ryan, is that um, you know XGs are really hard to get right, right? So particularly because the fact their models are built simply 
basically pretty simply. Um, and if you watch a goal that has an XG of say a quarter, and sometimes you see it and you're like, what are you talking about? That's right in front of the net, but that's how they evaluated them or they or they come up with these long, um, long distance shots. They have an XG of, you know, point one, but there's nobody in the middle. Or right. so my, my, I guess my question would be, um, did you, did you look at the shots kind of one by one and say, uh, were there any obvious ones that popped out that said they should have made that they didn't, or are we just relying on, on a, a statistical model? Real quickly. I want to point out the irony of, the analyst pushing the journalist. Yeah. The, the models are probably crap. Did you look at the actual uh, observation? Yeah, because I, I know soccer. That's right. You know, <laughs> I think I think the the eyes are still pretty damn good in soccer. Yeah, I, to I like I. It's funny that you say that, kid. You know, my experience in covering the sport is trying to rely less and less on my yeah. eyes because yeah. I know yeah. all the biases that I bring in. And I think when the ball goes in the net, it's really hard to separate the fact that the ball went in the net with what the quality of the chance actually was, right? Like it can, you if the player perfectly places it in the upper corner and has like a little bit of space to do it from 25 yards out, it can look like that was a great chance, but like, that's just not going to happen most of the time. Um, and I yeah. think like to Adi, Adi's point, like it's more, it's almost just like more useful to talk about the number of shots than XG. Like they took 85 shots and allowed 20 <laughs> like it's just to, to me that like you kind of like that's what you do and then you kind of just throw your hands up in the air once you create that more that many more shots than your opponents basically okay so ryan you you used a term i'm very interested in just following up quickly on you use the term finisher is that an intrinsic quality of a player like in other words is somebody a finisher or not or are there, I'll call it, someone's a finisher on certain types of shots or against certain types of defense? Because like, as a mathematician, I used to study this a lot. Like, There's an argument, is ability a unidimensional scale? There's smart people and less smart people. Well, are there finishers and non-finishers? Or what, does the, what, does the, what is there really? Is that something that you've noticed in soccer? How do people talk about it? And is anyone ever written about that in a book, by any chance? Do you know? Yeah, I don't know. There, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think... I think I mentioned this last time I was on. I think you just need such a long like time horizon of shots from a player to have any confidence in if he's let's just call him an above XG finisher, right? That's that's sort of what we mean here by by finishing, converting the chance into a right. goal at a higher rate, higher rate than expected. Um, like Lionel Messi is way, way above XG for his career. Um, we're also seeing that play out in front of our very eyes in MLS. And then there's a handful of other players that are, you know, let's say, let's say Messi's 25% over XG. There's a handful of other guys that have put up long careers of being about 10% over. And then to me, after that, I just, yeah, I think it's, I think, yes, there will be players that are better at converting specific chances than others. The XG models aren't maybe quite advanced, um, or at least the public ones that I get to see aren't quite advanced enough to like break it down that much. And then I guess you get into the question of like, how often are you getting these specific chances and are you getting them often enough for us to be confident in what so the result this, the is? So the summary in your, in your view, Ryan, is there are finishers, it's just low statistical power to actually identify who they are. Yes. And I would say 90% of goal scoring is comes before you kick the ball. Well, that's interesting as well. That's a whole nother, that's like, like shot creation as opposed to shot conversion. Another one of our favorite topics around here. But I just want to point out that we, we didn't fully introduce Ryan because he's been on the show recently. But one of the things that he has done is write a terrific book called Net Gains. I think he published it last year. And it's just a delight to read from the first chapter on. And it, Adi and I, I know, I think Eric jumped into it as well, but Adi and I reveled in it for a long time. And he there's a there's a chapter in there, chapter three, Myth, the mythical finisher, I think, is, is, is the title of the chapter. So it's an excellent resource for these kinds of questions. I want to ask one more question on the U.S. women's team. And it goes to an article that was in the New York Times, uh, I don't know, yesterday, day before, by Rory Smith. Did you see this thing where he writes, yeah, yeah, it was just a millimeter, but don't let that fool you. The, this has been a long time coming and the, and the team kind of earned it. And, and he goes but, you know, I think the nature of his argument was largely, look, the U.S. had an advantage for a long time on the rest of the world and the rest of the world's catching up. And that's not so much a blame as it is just the reality of the sport is popularized and the big 
clubs around the world have started supporting women's soccer. And so there's kind of, there's not the baked in advantage there used to be. It does call for at least considering institutional responses. Like what are we doing on the junior circle? What are we doing nationally? And it reminded me, Ryan, now now I'm going to, I'm going to raise the question that I, I don't remember exactly, but I kind of think you talk about this in your book on the, on the men's side, you, you played as a junior and you were kind of astounded if I remember at the way things were run and especially in comparison to the way juniors were run in, in Europe. So I'm my, all of this is to say, what do you think about Rory's piece? And do you buy the argument that we need to be doing something nationally since we don't have the baked in advantage of the head start we used to have? Yeah. So to like boil it down, if you want to like have one reason why the women's national team is, or I'll give you two, why they're so far ahead of everyone else or why they were so far ahead is essentially title nine created this pathway for competitive soccer for women in the U S that didn't exist because no countries like no other countries outside of the U S were taking soccer, women's soccer seriously in a professional sense at all. So our college system basically gave us a massive leg up in that regard. And then the team was good and the players were famous and we actually invested a little bit in the teams. So that kind of, maintain the edge. But I think Rory, you know, his general take that the rest of the world is catching up is accurate. Um, But I think like, to me, I don't know, to me, like the US before, before the Netherlands game, they'd won 13 straight World Cup games in regulation, which like that's, that almost created like a completely false sense of superiority that the US had to the rest Mm -hmm. of the world. A bunch of those games were five of those games were one goal wins where (laughs) let's bring it up again one bounce can change anything right yeah and so i think that run created a it it made it seem like the u.s was so far ahead of everyone else and they just they weren't at that time um the women's champions league was growing in stature um they were still the best team but the gap wasn't that big they kind of just went on like a lights out run that you probably aren't going to see again. My guess is no women's team ever wins 13 games. Also, Ryan, you you said it when you opened one loss to three, one didn't lose to 50, one Mm -hmm. lost to three, one loses to three, 40% of the time, let's say in all sports, it's not that rare. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I think, yes, the rest of the world is catching up. And I think it'll be interesting to see given that in the men's on the men's side, we've, you know, we're kind of seeing that the rest of the world is better at developing soccer players than the U S has been because it's so competitive and um, it's a global market for players. You have the transfer market teams are trying to sell players while in our women's, you know, world, I think we're, we're sort of, we sort of grafted on what we were doing with men's soccer to women's soccer. And it didn't matter because we had so many women playing soccer, all of our best athletes, a lot of our best athletes playing soccer. So it didn't matter. So I think it'll be very interesting to see as like, you know, the big clubs in men's soccer are now investing in women's soccer to a, a very small degree, a degree still, but it's making a massive difference. And they have their sort of whole academy pipeline and all of that infrastructure and know-how set up already. So I think it'll be interesting. I, I, I'm I'm still not convinced that um, like the U.S. will ever get surpassed. I think there's just going to be so much talent playing soccer in the U.S. But I think, yeah, I, I think the general argument that like, the rest of the world is close is um, accurate, but I honestly think the rest of the world was close like in the previous two World Cups and also even in 2007 when they lost 4 nothing to Brazil in the semifinals. So it's, it's all great perspective. And it's interesting to me to hear a convert, an outsider to the analytic statistics world, come around and preach it with a purity that is actually helpful to us in the analytic world. So that okay. it's really Plus, you're marrying it with institutional knowledge, which is really helpful. One follow-up question to the story you just told. Did the U.S. success on the women's side inspire, induce some of the investment around the world in women's soccer? Was that part of the dynamic or no? I I think that I I would assume it played a role. I don't don't know if you've seen anyone like talk about that directly. But yeah, I mean, they're some of the most famous female athletes in the world, right? Um, and I, I think one, the U S beating European countries at soccer is a good way to make a bunch of Europeans. <laughs> <That's mad. helpful. laughs> right. Um, and then I think, okay. you know, I, I think just it kind of, you see how much money men's teams are making. Right. And then you, 
you see how little some of these teams are investing in their women's teams. You know, I think that just society is moving in that direction and it became kind of more of a demand just among all soccer fans that teams at least put a little bit of money in. Okay. So, so Ryan, uh, the way that the rest of the world develops women's players is probably similar to the way they develop the men's players in soccer and the way they develop their athletes in other sports. I mean, we are very, very much wedded to the collegiate system. This is how in so many areas we develop our athletes. Uh, and uh, I just wonder whether or not their system is ultimately better and that they're going to surpass us because we are so devoted to the collegiate system to develop our, our, our soccer players. Is that true in soccer, uh, Brian Bowie? When you answer Adi's question, is that true? Because I thought there were like U11, U13, U15, U17, U19 developmental programs that are outside of the college system. Well, no, that's that's in soccer. We've developed them recently. And I don't, oh, okay. I think that, that's definitely happening. I mean, we do it here at Philadelphia Union. We work with them. And these places are created uh, as often as adjuncts to the or, or partners with the uh, with the first teams, the the MLS first teams, because they know this is the best way to develop talent and, and make money because you sell the talent uh, generally overseas. Um, but I don't think we're doing that with the women. And if we are, I'd certainly like to know about it. Yeah, I mean, the, the men. There's academies. There's academies that have popped up all across the country. All the MLS teams have academies now. Uh, most of the women's team played in college. I, I would. I think probably almost everyone played in college, other than Alyssa Thompson, who's 18. And I don't think Lindsay Hand played in college either. I think she went straight to PSG. So like they're, it's still mostly a college-based system with women's soccer. And I think it's a good point, right? Like in, in the NFL, in football, we're not competing with the rest of the world to develop athletes. It's just like, they're all here. And like, whoever's the best is going to go play for the Chiefs or whatever. Um, while with basketball, like we all, we have all the best basketball players, but like, do we have any like impetus to like be better at developing them? And like, you are seeing that, the a bigger and bigger chunk of the all NBA teams every year are players that are not from the U S. So it does seem like the rest of the world's catching up in basketball potentially too. So I don't, I don't see why you wouldn't see it happen here, but I just think it's, we're just going to always have so many uh, talented women playing soccer that like, even if we don't know how to develop them or coach them, we'll still be among the favorites to win every world cup. Wow. Okay. It's uh, interesting. Interesting perspective. Good. Uh, very balancing perspective for us all the way around, Ryan. Thank you. On the women's side, let's jump to men's soccer. And before jumping to Premier League, which is about to start, let's talk closer to home. And it's more fun than ever for the novice soccer fans to talk about U.S. professional soccer because, you know, Messi is playing, not only playing, but like doing astounding things. Maybe it's not astounding given that it's him. But I'm curious, Ryan, what your perspective has been. He's played, he's got like, what, seven goals in four games or something, including a couple of uh, either uh, game winners or clinchers late penalty kicks. He's beautiful, you know, trademark messy penalty kicks late in matches. He has Miami, which is apparently the cellar dweller on the, on the, on the, on the U.S. side, but they're playing this. Tell us about this neat, this neat tournament they're playing with Mexico. And they've got him into like the quarters or at least the round of 16. So a lot of fun things going on down in Miami. What's your perspective? I mean, I feel like in the past, we've had these guys come over. Beckham, of course, did really well. But it goes back years. We've always kind of imported the, the older star from somewhere else. And it's been kind of a novelty act. And um, about a cut or, or three above the typical. And But his performance has been so great. I'm curious what your reaction is, right? Yeah, I... Um... So League's Cup is just a it's a mid-season tournament between the between MLS and Liga MX, the Mexican League, where they play group stage and then a knockaround, trying to kind of build up a relationship between the leagues, because I think that could potentially be a thing going forward, a much closer relationship between the US and Mexico. And okay, real, before to- you go past that, before you go past that, it's, it's one of these neat things, right? Where they stop league play and they do this for like a month or whatever. Yeah. Is that yeah. right? And so it is just kind of this break. And a team like Miami, especially since they got messy right at the beginning, even though they're at the absolute bottom of MLS, can be competitive. Just to be clear, Kate, this is what they're proposing to do in the NBA that we've talked about as well, right? Well, yeah, yes. Though they're going to keep on playing regular Sorry. season games. They're, they're going to count. They're not going to stop. Oh, this oh. Is, okay. But anyway, it's a neat thing, Ryan, that we probably all ought to be paying attention to. We might not even be, you know, we're watching these highlights of Messi score these goals, might not realize that it's this interesting tournament against the Mexican League. 
Yeah, it's funny that you you kept us uh, referring to his goals as penalty kicks because um, they're they're all they're free kicks, free, from free, kicks the box. free kicks. No, 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 but, no, no. I... But the coach for <laughs> FC Dallas after the game basically said it's base the equivalent. Messi getting a free kick is the That's equivalent right. of a penalty kick. Yeah, you yeah, need yeah. to hope he falls down as he's running running toward the ball. I mean, yeah. it's it's like massively exceeded all of my expectations already. I mean, he scored oh, a good. free kick in injury time of the, his first game with inter Miami <laughs> at home with like LeBron James and Serena Williams and David Beckham all staring at that him movie, you know, right? to win the game. Like that's not how soccer works. Like Met, Messi's whole dominance is like, he affects the game in subtle ways for 90 minutes. You know, it's <laughs> not just like he just does that. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, it's like, so I did a piece just trying to project his potential performance in the league. And I think you made a good point. Like Messi just won the best player award at the world cup. He was amazing in France this past year. He's old, but he's at worst, one of the five best players in the world still, I would say. So it's not like, <laughs> you know, we're bringing some scrub. Um, and I tried to do a couple different ways of projecting like what his performance would be in MLS. One, I looked at Carlos Vela who kind of has the record for best MLS season goals and assist perspective. Um, and he, uh, he went from like, in La Liga, before he came to MLS, he was at like 0.35 uh, goals and assists per 90. And he jumped up to like 1.25 goals and assists per oh, 90. Geez. So I, oh, you know, very, very stupidly, I just converted Messi's uh, performance purely based on that ratio. And Messi, Messi would score, uh, I think it was 3.5 goals and assists per game, would end up with over 100 goals and assists in a season. No MLS team has ever done that by themselves. So I did that sort of like tongue in cheek. But like that's yeah. basically the rate he's currently at <laughs> um, so far. So I don't know. It's it's been interesting. It's cool to just see people excited about it. Like the stadiums are sold out. He's creating all of these very exciting moments, um, making people care about the League Cup. Um, but it's also been interesting to kind of see like how he's doing so well. Like what specific, you know, because you wonder what's the difference between MLS and the premier league as you watch, right? Is it the skill level? Is it the intelligence of the players? Is it the fitness? And I think we are getting maybe a couple answers about what the, the differences are by how Messi's, uh, how he he's specifically oh, dominating. Um, well, so I want to hear more, more about that because the first reaction, whenever you see him perform this well, or you, you hear from a distance, how many goals he has, you think, well, you know, competition's not as good, but then the highlight shots have been these free kicks. And you're like, well, I mean, it's not like the U.S. players are going to make walls less effectively. I mean, the free kick is a yeah. pretty much apples to apples comparison. And he's just, you know, nailing those things. But when you do this analysis, when you see the the, the kind of back to back comparison, what does it reveal to you about what's different in the Premier League? Uh, I think like the main thing that has stood out is how hard it is for the players to deal with his movement when he doesn't have the ball. Um there's a goal uh, two games ago where he's kind of just like walking along top of the box, the defensive midfielder and center back kind of forget about him. And then as soon as the ball gets played wide, he immediately sprints to the center of the box. The guy chips it over. He's suddenly inside the six yard box alone with the keeper and just rips it into the goal. And like, this is Lionel Messi accessing the most dangerous area on the field quite easily. You know, like he, that's the one guy you don't <laughs> let do that. And, you know, it's I've, I've seen people be yeah. like, oh, the coaching is terrible and the players suck. But it's like, you do you not think the coaches are like aware that Messi's on Inter Miami and they need to do everything to stop him. So just like the way he moves, he's able like the it just feels like the players in MLS have no it's so hard for them to sort of calculate where he is on the field, how his movements are changing while huh. also defending against everyone else. And you think of Messi as, you know, this amazing dribbler with great passing skill, but his like off ball movement is the thing that stood out most to me so far. That's amazing because there's this famous line in a Luke Bourne paper. Um, Luke's got co-authors on that. And, and one of them includes the Barca, the Barcelona analyst. Is it Fernandez? Luis Fernandez? Famously observing that he creates value even when he's walking. So that matches very well that observation. Eric. You no, know, no, I was just going to ask Ryan, I, I think one of the things I was thinking about when I knew you were going to be on the show was, does he help given, you know, he just played in the World Cup and he just played in the, and you know, in, in over in Europe. So it's not like his skills have degraded significantly. So let's make an assumption that before and after 
his skills have been basically the same. Does this provide us an opportunity to rank or to basically equate the level of the MLS to the English Premier League? Just because there's not, a, you know, a lot of times you can say, well, we can't do it because of the temporal decline. Like, oh, he's four years older. Well, no, he's not. Or, oh, he didn't play that much before and now he's playing more. No, he played before and now he played. I just thought from a statistical perspective, this is a golden opportunity to try to think about how to equate the leagues. I was just interested in your perspective. No, I, I think you definitely can. And, I, I, you know, one thing you'll I mean, I guess you can sort of just compare it to how he did in his most recent season in France. Right. And that kind of maybe gives you a general sense of where he's at at this stage in his career and how how much his production will increase in MLS. But at the same time, you know, in the best league in the world at the time, La Liga, he scored 50 goals in a season and had like 18 assists also. And like, you know, so he's he's I, I guess maybe if MLS turns old Messi into peak Messi, that's that's an interesting interesting little thing but i think there's a structural thing with mls where they have all these weird salary rules that like allow you to sign a handful of famous players or expensive players basically and the issue with that right is most of these teams are going to sign attacking players because an individual attacker is just going to impact your winning more more than an individual defender most of the time and two they're the more famous players but it, it it doesn't allow like it increases the spending powers of the teams but it doesn't allow the teams to like just spend a little bit of extra money on every position. So it creates these incredibly lopsided teams that are typically worse defensively because they're putting way more of their resources toward attackers. So Messi is like designed in a lab to exploit the structural inadequacies of MLS, basically. So just one last comment on this, Ryan. I have a prediction. Everyone knows when players get old, I have this prediction that what you end up with is a bimodal distribution. Like sometimes if you had stayed in the English Premier League, sometimes you would get the excellent Messi, and sometimes you get the old Messi. My belief is that's still going to happen in MLS. It's just that you're going to get a larger probability from the big hump than from the little hump. And so I'm guessing when I when we actually study his performance, we'll, I'll make it up, maybe he was 50-50 great Messi and just good Messi in the English Premier League, and he's 80-20 in MLS because the players are worse, doesn't have to expend as much energy. I'm staying with that theory until someone like you who really knows what they're talking about tells me differently. No, I like, I like that a lot. And it, it seems, you know, some of these guys come to MLS and they don't really seem to care that much. Messi seems very, very engaged, which, which has been cool to see. I just want to, I just want to celebrate Eric. Since I called penalty kicks, free kicks or free kicks, penalty kicks, Eric just called uh, uh, PSG in the premier league. So that's, that's now we're equal. Yeah. Adi, you want to try that's to catch true. up with us? <laughs> I just wanted to know whether you would, you would be regressing uh, Messi's future performance down at all? Or are you just going to go with your forecast and project out? I mean, what should what should what is what should you be thinking as a as a pure base rate type of fella? I'm I'm not I'm I'm imagining he's going to be worse than he's been going out. But uh, maybe I have nothing to say, and it's he, he is is at his mean. Yeah, I, I mean, I think we should expect him to, to decline a little bit over the next over the next couple seasons, but it's it's interesting I, I think he's been really good at sort of modulating the way he plays to maximize his impact over time um so it wouldn't surprise me if you know he loses some physical capacity and then he hangs out at the goal more often and he's maybe not you know progressing the ball upfield like he used to but he's actually scoring more goals so i think i think he's like the specific athlete who like knows how to uh change his game to make it fit whatever his body is able to do all right, man. Well, we should be soaking it up. Uh, it's really, it's been special so far and it's apt to stay special for at least a little longer. Before we let you go, Ryan, we got to hear a little bit about the upcoming season in the Premier League. You, um, we, I'm just looking at the the odds, the betting odds here. So I, I can, I can come with a few questions for you, but I'm curious what you consider to be the top storyline or, or even a storyline that you're especially interested in. Man City, actually odds on favorite, more likely to win than not, which I guess shouldn't be yeah. too surprising. The ones that jump out to me are, it feels like Ars- Arsenal has snuck up over the last couple of years, they had a good season last season. I think of them as being pretty advanced on the analytics side. I believe at one point they bought one of the top soccer analytics shops and brought them in-house. Do I have that right? And then the other that jumps out to me are Newcastle has has snuck up. They, they were bought recently, and I guess they're getting a lot of money. I'm guessing that's behind it. But then Tottenham is drifting down. Do I have those right? And what storylines most interest you going into the season? Yeah, you, you're you're correct. Uh, 
Arsenal bought stat DNA a while back, uh, Sarah Rudd, who I feel like you guys have had her on the show. Probably yeah, we've had point. Sarah on. And then they hired a character in my book, um, actually, right after the book came out. So they 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 are more analytical than than your average team. I think to me, the the thing that interests me, this is maybe a little too wonky, but like last year was a really weird season where what you're describing, Arsenal and Newcastle massively overachieved to ways no one expected. Liverpool were basically able to be neck and neck with Manchester City for four years and then finished in fifth, had their worst season since they hired their manager, Jurgen Klopp. Chelsea finished in 11th, and they didn't. this wasn't like a team that underperformed their expected goals. They were like a legitimate performance quality 11th <laughs> team, um, and they won the Champions League two years ago. So, And there's okay. a lot of reasons why it was potentially weird, right? The World Cup happened in the middle of the season. It was also the third season of the kind of COVID disruption where the games got delayed and then the seasons were pushed close together. So this is kind of the first normal off season we've had. So I'm, what I'm thinking of as like an analyst is um, how, like, do I wait last year as much as I would have waited two years ago before last year, if that makes any sense? Like, do I think, do I assume Arsenal and Newcastle are just, you know, because their performances were two and three in the league last year, like inarguably. So do I, is that where I think they are? And then I look at their summer changes and judge them off that. Or do I look at Liverpool and say, wow, they still have pretty much the entire team that they had when they were amazing. Maybe they just had a down year. So I think that's kind of going to be really interesting um, to see sort of how real last year was, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As, as an outsider, it feels fresh to me to have someone out of the big six uh, in the conversation the way Newcastle is. But I, I guess that's the, is it, are the Saudis the ones who bought Newcastle? Do I have that right? Or is it another money group? Yes, the Saudis are. Um, there was actually just a transfer between a Saudi club and Newcastle, uh, both of which are owned by the same entity. So you guys can try to figure out how they figured out the the true transfer fee for that player. The the accounting on that one. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Listen, we've, we've, we've kept you too long, man. Uh, Appreciate your time, Ryan, very much. And we look forward to hearing more from you down the road. Love coming on. Thanks guys. All right. Ryan O'Hanlon, Ryan, longtime friend of the show. He is a soccer writer for ESPN, the author of net gains. We can strongly recommend his book, net gains. And he's a great follow on Twitter at R-W-O-H-A-N, 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 Brian O'Hanlon. That has been a full hour of Wharton Moneyball here on SiriusXM. For our three hosts, this is Kate Massey, full show here with Eric and Adi Shane will be back. For our boss, Matty Datz, for our associate boss man, Dion Simpkins. Appreciate y'all listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.